0: Our topic for tonight is the topic of regeneration, regeneration, and when we raise this topic of regeneration, it's immediately connected to terminology that is perhaps better known, uh, the terminology of being born again, being born again. In fact, the label, born again Christian, is very common jargon in American culture, A uh, 2017 LifeWay research poll found that 29% of Americans self-identify as a born-again Christian or as being born again, and another 6% were not sure. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But just think of that. Roughly one in three people would claim, and the reality of statistics, you know, there's Truth, lies, and statistics, right? But, you know, 30% of Americans would call themselves born again, regenerated. Now, all of that comes down to what the definition of being born again is. What does it mean to be born again? It's a critical question, but most who would self-identify as being born again would define that that label or, or that description as simply referring to some kind of personal decision they made, some kind of commitment they made at one time in their past life their past life to in some way adhere to to follow Jesus Christ, and that that commitment now has some kind of influence in their lives. That's how most people would define being born again. I've made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. Therefore, I am born again. That's how many in our culture would use the term. And really, that's probably how many Christians in the church, those who are regular members of good, solid churches, would would probably define what it means to be born again. I made a profession of faith, therefore I am born again. Interestingly enough, in that same poll, in that same statistical research, that found that 30% or 29% of Americans self-identify as being born again, less than half of those, less than half of that that. that pool of American culture who calls themselves born again, less than half of those who call themselves born again would strongly agree with core evangelical beliefs. In other words, part of this statistic is that even those who call themselves born again don't hold very tenaciously, maybe even neutrally, maybe ambivalently, do they hold to Core elements of evangelical belief, and yet they call themselves born again. And that raises the key question What does it mean to be born again? In fact, when we talk about the issue of assurance of salvation, and we're going to get into that later on once we get back into our series in January and February and so on, we'll start talking more about assurance of salvation. But when we talk about assurance of salvation, really what we are talking about is the confidence that we are born again. Assurance of salvation is the confidence that we are born of God. That we've been made new in Christ. We are a new creature. And so it behooves us to answer this question very carefully. What does it mean to be born again? Because any amount of assurance of salvation that I can possibly have must be related to the accuracy with which I answer this question. What does it mean to be born again? If I don't know what it means to be born again, my assurance really doesn't mean very much. If I am to have assurance of salvation, it must be connected to an adequate grasp of what it means to be born of God. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. It's a massive topic, and we'll do our best to get through it in the time that we have. Now, by way of introduction, last week, we looked at the concept of calling. In particular, we looked at the concept of the effectual call, and we noted that that study began our series of what we call the application of redemption, the application of salvation. That salvation, first of all, was planned in eternity past, it was arranged. And then salvation was accomplished at a historical moment in time in the life of Christ, particularly in his cross work. And then for us who are believers, that Redemption then is applied to us in relative time, relative to the moment of our regeneration, when God begins to apply all the things that He accomplished in Christ on the cross. And that, that regeneration is, is connected to this concept of calling, in fact, Many theologians would even say the concept of effectual calling and regeneration are one and the same thing. And it, because it's so difficult to separate them, but it, it does appear from scripture because of the different terms used that we can talk about effectual call as being a little different than regeneration. And tonight we're going to look at the concept of regeneration. We're going to focus our thoughts on this term, regeneration, on its synonyms and see what the Scriptures say on this issue. And in a word, and let me begin with this very important idea, when we talk about the doctrine of regeneration, this is very important to grasp. The doctrine of regeneration is God's response to the reality of total depravity. We talked about total depravity several months ago. Total depravity we defined as the... the the teaching that refers to the devastating impact of sin on the person. And we notice that it covers three related concepts. Total depravity refers to the pollution and corruption of all aspects of a person. His mind, his will, his affections. That was component number one. A uh, 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 Second component here was that total depravity relates to the complete inability of a person to please God. Total depravity does not mean that everybody acts as wickedly as they could, not at all. But total depravity does teach, as, as we looked at Scripture and in Scripture's testimony, that even though man isn't as evil as he could be, whatever he does do apart from Christ is not pleasing to God. It is mixed with all kinds of selfish motivations to such a degree and, 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 and is so pervasive that the one who is ensnared in his sin doesn't even know he is ensnared in his sin. It results in this complete inability of a person to please God. And then thirdly, when we talk about total depravity, we're also talking about its extent as it relates to all humankind. It's, it's not that some are totally depraved and others aren't based on culture or conditioning or that babies aren't totally depraved, but adults are or things like that. No, every single human being, apart from Jesus Christ, the perfect man, every human being is described as being in this state. We could look at Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that he's referring to those who have been made alive, but he says, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of, the ra- of wrath, even as the rest. That's total depravity. Or we could look at Romans chapter 3, verse 10, which says there's none righteous, no one righteous, not even one. Paul says it very clearly. There's no exceptions. All are totally depraved. And that then raises the question, how can a person who is dead in trespasses and sins, whose mind is at enmity against God, and who cannot do that which is well-pleasing to God, how can such a man answer a call to the fellowship of Christ, as John Murray asks? How can a person dead in trespasses actually do something like believe? In a way that is pleasing to the Lord. How can that happen? That is where the doctrine of regeneration comes into place. And therefore, our understanding of this doctrine of regeneration is tied directly to our understanding of the doctrine of total depravity. And let me explain it this way if you believe that man is just a little bit sick, he's just a little bit sinful then your understanding of regeneration will reflect that understanding. Then in that case, regeneration is just going to be a little bit of reform. A little bit of transformation. Because after all, if man is only a little bit sick, he just needs a little bit of a remedy. But if you do embrace the scriptural testimony of the depravity of man, then you realize You need something supernatural. You need something miraculous. Something more than just a moral reform. Something more than just pulling oneself up by his bootstraps. Something that will change him at the core of his very being. And that is what the Scriptures teach as the doctrine of regeneration. Now let's look at some key terms related to this topic for tonight. We're going to look at two of them. The first one is the term regeneration. I want to define that. And then the second one is the term monergism. Monergism. And I want to define that because some of you have probably heard that term but wondered what does it have to do with the, the doctrine of salvation? What does it have to do with the gospel? What is this weird term monergism? And I want to explain it and define it tonight. First, let's look at this term Regeneration. Regeneration. How do we define this term? MacArthur and Mayhew in Biblical Doctrine provide this fairly straightforward definition. They state, at the most fundamental level, regeneration is the divine impartation of eternal spiritual life into the spiritually dead sinner. That's regeneration. At a very simple level, regeneration is the impartation of life where there is none. And then you build upon it. It's the divine impartation of life where there is none. You build a little bit more upon that as well and say it's the divine impartation of life to a sinner who is dead in his trespasses and sins and unable to live for himself. And so, MacArthur and Mayhew... He even provide this fuller definition a few pages later. Let me give it to you now. Regeneration is the sovereign act of God by the Holy Spirit and through the preached gospel, whereby he instantaneously imparts spiritual life to a sinner, bringing him out of spiritual death and into spiritual life. So there's a, a few more details that are added there. Regeneration is a sovereign act of God. We're going to look at that now this evening as we look at the characteristics of regeneration. But it's a sovereign act of God. It is done by the agency of the Holy Spirit. He is the chief member of the triune Godhead who is involved in imparting this life. It occurs together with the gospel, not apart from it. And he instantaneously, in a, in a split second, in a moment, imparts spiritual life in such a way to bring that sinner out of his deadness and into newness of life. Let me give you another definition here, and definitions are helpful. We can see the, the common ways that theologians have defined these terms. We can grasp the, the key concepts then that we see common in all these definitions. John Murray, Defines regeneration this way. A change which is radical and all-pervasive. A change which cannot be explained in terms of any combination, permutation, or accumulation of human resources. Stop there. What he's saying is that this radical change that occurs at the moment of regeneration... This all-pervasive, radical transformation cannot be explained in terms of any human activity as if we ourselves produce it. It's not because of any combination, permutation, or accumulation of human resources. He continues, A change which is nothing less than a new creation by Him who calls the things that be not as though they were, who spoke and it was done, who commanded and it stood fast. This, in a word, is regeneration. Now we're going to look at uh, uh, several characteristics of regeneration, but before we do, uh, just a, a few words here about the general biblical testimony to this doctrine. The word regeneration actually only occurs in the Bible in two places. That that specific term regeneration, it occurs in Matthew 19 verse 28 and Titus 3 verse 5. In Matthew 19 uh, verse 28, it's actually referring to creation, to a renewal, a rebirth of creation that is going to happen at the beginning of Christ's reign here on Earth. Jesus talks about that in Matthew 19 verse 28. So that really doesn't have to do with our salvation per se. But the the only text that does use this term regeneration with respect to our salvation is Titus 3 verse 5, and I'll read that a a little bit later. But that's the only time when the actual term regeneration is used uh, in the, the New Testament in particular to refer to our salvation. Nonetheless, there are many other synonyms that can be found in Scripture which testify to this doctrine. So, in fact, we actually find other terms used much more frequently to describe this event. So, for example, in the Old Testament, you have the concept of the circumcision of the heart. Cutting off the deadness of the heart. That was an Old Testament synonym for what we call regeneration. The giving of a new heart. And by by the way, that one was in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 the circumcision of the heart. That is referring to regeneration. We also read in Ezekiel 11 verse 19 and 36 verse 26, that of giving a new heart or giving a heart of flesh. That too is a reference to the doctrine of regeneration. Moving into the New Testament, we find the common terminology, especially in John's writings To refer to being born again or born from above, born of water and the Spirit. We see that specifically in John 3, the concept of rebirth, born again, born of water and the Spirit. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, verse 3 and verse 23, uses the terms born again. Later on in John's first epistle, he refers or he uses this phrase born of God and uses it numerous times in his writing as he gives tests for assurance of salvation. He keeps going back to this idea that you can know you are born of God if. And that again, that phrase born of God, is a reference to regeneration. The the phrase to make alive or to give life, we see in Paul's writings in Ephesians two, verse five, he made us alive. Colossians 2 verse 13, he made us alive. The giving of life, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 6. Also in Paul's writing, we have this term, new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, that that any man who is in Christ is a new creation. And that's referring to this doctrine of regeneration. In Galatians 6 verse 15, he says, what matters matters compared to all the other stuff that doesn't matter, is this, that a man is a new creature, a new creation. As I said, in the Old Testament, we find this teaching, and it's not just a a New Testament text. Let me actually read Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, where Moses says that the Lord your God, speaking to the people of Israel, and the promises being made to the nation of Israel, Moses says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul so that you may live. It's a reference to regeneration as Moses is promising that there will be a national regeneration that takes place in the people of Israel when all of a sudden they will long to live for the Lord their God, that they will love him with their whole heart, mind, and soul. And that will come about as, the, as a result of this circumcision of the heart. I won't read the text, but Jeremiah 31, verse 33, refers to the law being put in their hearts, being written on their hearts. Again, a reference to regeneration. Ezekiel eleven nineteen: 19, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them, a reference to regeneration. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 26, the Lord promises. Regarding the nation of Israel, I will sprinkle clean water on you. He's not referring to actual H2O. This is a spiritual cleansing. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That is regeneration terminology. As I said in the New Testament, John the Apostle speaks of regeneration a lot, and of course the critical text is John chapter 3 verses 1 to 8. Let me read this text. We're going to come back to it and draw observations from it. John 3 verses 1 to 8 that foundational text about regeneration. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Stop there for just a moment. I'm not going to spend much time on this, but when Jesus said that unless a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God, that is a reference to those verses we read out of Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 26, where, where the, the promise is given that God is going to sprinkle with water, referring to spiritual cleansing, and put His Spirit within them. Jesus is referring to that text here in John 3. So it's not baptism that's referred to when Jesus says that one must be born of water and the Spirit. It's a reference to Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26. Now Jesus continues and He says this, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not be amazed that i said to you you must be born again the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit now keep that text in mind we're going to come back to it in a few moments but before we get there i have to introduce the second term because it relates to our discussion it's the term Monergism. Monergism. Now, this term monergism is made up of two Greek words. Monos and ergon. Monos means pertaining to only one. Alone. That's the idea. Single. And ergon is the Greek word, the the root. Ergon comes from the the word energy. And so, the idea with that is action, activity, activity. Deeds, works. So you put monos and ergon together and you get monergism, monos ergon, pertaining only to one and an action. And so monergism is defined as an action done by one person alone. A unilateral action is the definition of monergism. A unilateral action done only by one party, only by one person. That's monergism. Now, as it relates to theology, and in particular, as it relates to our doctrine of regeneration, this is how MacArthur and Mayhew define it. Monergism is the view that regeneration is accomplished exclusively by the working of God. That's what monergism means. It is accomplished. It is caused and brought about. By one party only, and that is by God. Now, the opposite of monergism is something that we call synergism. And that term is a little bit more common in our language. We talk about synergy. Synergy is where you have energy produced by multiple parties and it's all working together. And so you can sometimes say at your workplace, we have good synergy. That means everybody in the workplace is, is working well together. They are cooperating. That's good synergy. Now, the word synergism comes from two Greek words as well. Soon and ergon. We already know what ergon means. Ergon refers to a work, a deed, energy. But the word soon or sin that is added to that has the idea of partnership, association. And so when we talk about synergism... We are talking about a work produced in partnership, a work done in cooperation. And when we apply this to the doctrine of regeneration, this is how we define it. Again, MacArthur and Mayhew state this. Synergism is the idea that human works together with God... Uh, sorry, let me say that again. The idea, synergism is the idea that the human works together with God in certain aspects of salvation, especially regeneration, which is said to be a cooperative effort of divine aid and human faith. Now, that obviously raises the question. In monergism, it's God doing the work. In synergism, the view is that man contributes. He's in partnership with God to effect regeneration. And it raises the question then, what is man's contribution according to synergism? if if a person does contribute to his regeneration, what does he contribute? You need to know that if a contribution is needed by you to effect regeneration. You'd want to know, right? And that's the big question, and so synergists will define it in different ways. The classical uh, synergistic approach is to say that man takes the first step of faith towards God, and God regenerates him. So man says essentially, on my part, I give you my belief, my trust. I believe in your promise. And God responds to that by saying, okay, I give you new life. Man gives faith, God gives life. And they work together like that. That's the classic synergist position. Now, some will even say, if you get into certain uh, other forms outside of 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 Christianity, you'll have what's called baptismal regeneration. Now some of you may have even come from churches where they teach baptismal regeneration. And what is baptismal regeneration? It's the idea that you go through the rite of baptism, the process, the procedure of baptism. that then is your contribution, and as a result of being baptized. God then gives you new life. Baptismal regeneration. That's the idea of synergism. Now what does Scripture teach? And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But let me show it to you uh, here on the screen by means of of a diagram. Monergism looks at the act of regeneration, that circle, as being accomplished by God alone. Synergism looks at the act of regeneration as being accomplished through a partnership, a cooperation between man and God. That's the difference, and it makes a whole world of difference in how you understand theology. This is a major dividing line. It is a continental divide, and this is what divides many in theological disputes. Sometimes you may wonder, why are they fighting about these things? Why can't we just all agree? Why can't we just say, it's no big deal, let's just just agree with one another, put the issue behind us, and talk about other things like feeding the poor and accomplishing things like that. Well, the issue is, what you see on the screen is a major issue. What happened in your life, if you're in Christ, if you are a new creature, did you contribute to it, or did God do it all? You can't say that's a small issue, that that is of tertiary importance at best, because then it even affects how you bring the gospel to others. What do you tell the sinner? If you do something, God will respond, and he will contribute, and so on and so forth. It affects the way in which you present the gospel. These are issues of vast importance. Now, we're going to get back to this in just a moment, the issue of synergism. But now what I want to do, or monergism and synergism, now what I want to do is look at some essential characteristics. We're going to go through some texts in the time that we have and look at some essential characteristics of regeneration. And by doing this, we will see Scripture's testimony about the nature of regeneration. Let's look at these quickly. Number one, regeneration, first and foremost, is a sovereign and unconditional act of God. Regeneration, as Scripture defines it, is a sovereign and unconditional act of God. What that means is that this lies fully within the purview of God's free activity and His alone. And we, have, we don't need to go very far to look for this at all. We just need to look at the analogy of birth itself. The analogy of birth. Let me quote a couple of texts. John 1, verse 12 to 13. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Now, usually that verse is quoted by itself. Verse 12. But it doesn't belong by itself. Verse 13 is part of the same sentence and explains how there, can be, how there can be belief. Let me read it together. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There is no cooperation there, no partnership. It's very clear that the birth occurred solely by the will of God. Look at John 3, verse 3, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, the first time when he emphasizes the need to be born again, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And in this entire conversation from verses 1 to 8, Jesus uses the passive verb to be born six times. That that is emphatic. That is the idea that is repeated over and over and over to the exclusion of all other ideas. It is to be born, not to bear, not to birth, but to be born. And this analogy, the use of this verb in the passive sense, used six times from Jesus' mouth, emphasizes God's sovereignty and the individual's inability. Because let me ask you the question. How many of you were responsible for your conception? No one. How many of you were responsible for your gestation? No one. How many of you had control over the circumstances of your birth? No one. The birth analogy that is used here clearly and unequivocally, undisputably emphasizes that it happened to us. We did not act in cooperation or partnership. This is something that happened to us. John Murray says this, We were not begotten by our Father because we decided to be. And we were not born of our mother because we decided to be. We were simply begotten and we were born. We did not decide to be born. This is the simple but too frequently overlooked truth which our Lord here teaches us in first peter 1 verse 3 peter also says blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope now when you look at that it's important to note this peter does not identify the causation of our new birth as our faith He doesn't even say that we were caused to be born by the justice of God. That's a very important recognition here. He does not say who according to his great justice has caused us to be born again. You see, if it was justice, then God would be giving us something we deserved. And in that case, if it was according to his great justice, it would be because we deserved new birth. But he does not say justice. He says we were caused to be born again by His great mercy, which emphasizes the fact that this was not warranted, deserved, merited on our part. That there was no conditionality here, no quid pro quo, to use that overused term today. It was solely according to His mercy. And thus we can easily decide this, and we'll look at more testimony later, but this is monergism. When it comes to regeneration and the analogy of birth, it is monergism. Birth is monergistic. The baby does not supply what's needed. Let me move to the next one. Our second essential characteristic is that it is a mysterious ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is a mysterious ministry of the Holy Spirit. In many of these texts, the Holy Spirit is specifically identified as the special agent of regeneration. We see that, for example, in John 3 verses 5 to 6, where Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh, Is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is the spirit. And what's interesting to note as well is that Jesus describes the Holy Spirit's operations using the analogy of wind. Look at verse 8. John 3, verse 8 says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is of everyone who is born of the spirit. And the analogy here again emphasizes the sovereignty of the spirit. You know, there's nothing we can do to control the wind. M- mankind does try to control the rain. We try to plant seeds in the clouds so that it rains. But no one talks about trying to control the wind. The wind is sovereign, in a sense. And that's what, why Jesus uses that analogy here to refer to the Spirit. You can't stop the wind. But it's mysterious. It blows. And you, you don't actually see wind. All you observe are the effects of wind. And and Jesus says that's the way it is with regeneration and the Spirit's work. It is mysterious. You can't plan for it. You can't force it. You can't manipulate it. You can't create a musical context where you can get a bunch of sinners together and play the right tunes for a while to make regeneration happen. You can't force the Spirit's hands. You can't even use the most cleverly crafted apologetic defense to cause regeneration because it is a work of the Spirit and it is mysterious. Like the wind, some days it blows, some days it doesn't. Some days it blows with force, other days nothing. It is mysterious. Third, it is accomplished, regeneration is accomplished, through unification with Jesus Christ. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because we're going to come back to the topic of union with Christ later on. But we do find, especially in Paul's writings, that as he describes regeneration, he ties it specifically to the life of Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. Colossians 2 verse 13, 2 verse 13 says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. That is Christ. And the idea is, is that the life we received is a life that is tapped into the life of Christ. So you need to understand that when you were given new life, when this mysterious sovereign work of God happened to you, It was the life that finds its ultimate source in the life of Jesus Christ. That's the life that is now pulsing throughout your being. The life that he provides. The life that he has purchased. It is union with Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22, Paul says, For as in Adam all die. In other words, for everyone who is united to Adam, everyone, who shares union with Adam, they all die. So it is that in Christ, all will be made alive. All who are united to Christ, all who are placed into Christ, will be made alive. Just understand that. That is the kind of life that we have been given. It is no small thing. But rather, the life we experience as as having been regenerated, being born of God, is tied directly to the life of the one who purchased our salvation on the cross. Number four. Regeneration occurs in conjunction with the ministry of the word. James 1 verse 18 says, In the exercise of his will, God brought us forth by the word of truth. The same idea is presented in 1 Peter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. And so the idea here is that the Spirit operates to implant in us the life of Christ, but He does not do so apart from the preaching of the gospel. But that's the means that He uses as He brings life to us. In other words, we do not expect regeneration and shall not expect regeneration there where the gospel is not preached. It is only there where the gospel is preached that the Spirit works in and through the Word to accomplish regeneration. Number five, regeneration Radically and instantaneously transforms the core of our being. John 3, verse 6 says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. These are two very different things. 2 Corinthians 5:17 says: if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things. Passed away, behold, new things have come. Galatians 6, verse 15. For neither is circumcision anything, or uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now, as we look at the nature of this radical transformation, notice a couple of subpoints here. First of all, this radical transformation, this regeneration, is neither an addition to or subtraction from our existence. It is a transformation of our condition. It's not that something is just added to us. It's not just that something is taken away from us. It is that what we have is transformed. And it's very important to notice this. Sometimes Christians will misspeak and say that we have two natures. The old sin nature and the new nature. Technically, that's not correct. We do not have two natures. It's not as if we are now some kind of special class of human beings with two natures, whereas all the rest of humanity has just one. It is not an addition to. It is a transformation that takes place at the core of our being. Now, certainly, we still have this thing called the flesh, but it's not our nature. And we'll define that later on in the series. The old man, the first man, the natural man is gone. Gone. In the core essence of our being as those who have been regenerated, the new man, the spiritual man has come. And that's so very important to note because here is the the way in which bad theology affects our practice. So many Christians think they're still the same old person with all the same old ways, all the same old bondages. The same old person, he's just been given some new desires. So many Christians think of their conversion that way. And as a result, they stumble through the Christian life, one after another, falling and falling and falling again, thinking that this is all that there is. Whereas if we really understand what regeneration is, it is at the core of our being something totally new. You don't have to sin any longer. That old nature is gone. And any any sins that you now commit is just because you are failing to allow that new transformation to affect all parts, all corners of your speech and of your behavior and of your attitudes. Because, and this is the second sub-point here, This radical transformation transforms the condition of the entire person. It doesn't just change our mind. It doesn't just change our heart in the sense of emotions. Whatever was touched by sin has now been impacted by regeneration. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. Regeneration is as all-pervasive as depravity. In other words, wherever the blackness of sin stained, regeneration has gone there to remove the stain. Regeneration is as all-pervasive as depravity. While the regenerate individual is not yet as holy as he or she might be. We'll talk about that later. That's sanctification. But Sinclair Ferguson continues. He says, there is no part of life which remains uninfluenced by this renewing and cleansing work. Another writer said this, There is a hidden source from which our life springs, where these three streams, mind, will, and affections, are one. A stem from which these three branches sprout. At this source, God performs his miracle of regeneration. There he infuses the new principle of life. And since it is the source that pollutes the water, the stem that sends up, the sap of life into the branches, so from this implanting of a new life, a new disposition and efficacy flows for our understanding, our will, and our affections. Number six, regeneration causes faith and repentance. It causes it. Look for just a moment at First John 5 verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. Here's the idea. John is describing a present reality. Whoever believes, present continuous. But John stakes that on a prior act that caused this. Whoever believes has entered a state of being born of God. Understand the right order. In John 1 verse 12 to 13, we noticed this as well as we, we quoted this already. That it is those who believe in his name referring to a present reality. That those who believe in his name are those who were born. So it's important for us to understand here for just a moment the distinction between chronology and causation. I know it's late, Put your thinking caps on for just a few more minutes. The distinction between chronology and causation. They're two different things and two different perspectives on what happens in regeneration. Now get this. From the standpoint of chronology, the movement of time, regeneration and faith occur simultaneously. In terms of time, you can't split them. Where regeneration happens, faith is happening at the same time. Chronologically speaking. But from the standpoint of causation, one is the cause, the other is the effect. Let me show it this way. Let's look at it from the standpoint of chronology, the movement of time. How do we understand the moment of salvation when salvation is first applied to us, we see it this way regeneration and conversion are like one dot. You can't distinguish, they're simultaneous. But if we look at it from causation, this is what we see that in the process of salvation, these two things are different regeneration and conversion, or regeneration and faith. They're different. With one causing the other. And again, go back to that text which I read from First John 5 verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, that is your profession of faith. That Jesus, the historical person of Jesus, when you profess Him, you are showing that you are born of God. Not that you are being birthed as in a process, But that you have been born. And the way that the grammar works there is to show causation. That it is the being born of God that causes the one to believe that Jesus is the Messiah of God. We could look at other texts. But keep this important distinction in mind. Because, And here's an important thing to note. The regenerate person does not feel regeneration take place. You might say, well, sure I did. No, what you felt was faith. What you felt was conversion. What you felt was the exercise of faith. That's what you felt in the moment of salvation. But regeneration takes place below the level of consciousness. But it is a cause that inevitably and and, and essentially, and of necessity, must create the experience of faith. And in our, in our testimonies, we think back to what has happened to us. What we feel, and what we feel at the depth of our being, is this new exercise of faith, this profound sense of remorse and repentance over sin. That is being caused by something even more deeper, something even more profound, something even more miraculous and supernatural that you can't even feel it. And it is regeneration. Do not confuse these two things. though simultaneous in time, they are distinct. Let me quote John MacArthur here. He says, there can be no repentance or faith until the heart has been recreated. Stop there for just a moment. Remember what I had just said before about total depravity. Total depravity says you're unable to please God. In your totally depraved state, you can't do a work. You can't believe in a way that is pleasing to God. So therefore, there can be no repentance, no God-honoring faith, until the heart has been recreated. But in the moment of regeneration, the Holy Spirit imparts the gift of repentant faith to sinners, bringing them to saving faith in Christ and enabling them to turn away from sin. Two other qualities, I won't get into these. I'll just list these. For the sake of your own study, the seventh essential quality is that regeneration liberates us from sin and generates righteousness. You see, regeneration causes not only conversion, it causes a lifelong growth. A lifelong mortification from sin and a lifelong putting on of virtue. We could look at 1 John 2.29 and 1 John 3, verse 9, and 1 John 4, verse 7, and Ephesians 2, verse 10, which articulate that quality. then number eight, regeneration guarantees. A victorious outcome. Regeneration is victorious in the end. 1 John 5 verse 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Look at 1 John 5 verse 18 as well. And here's the thing, regeneration is efficacious. Regeneration is eternal. Here's the reality, once you've been born again, you will never die. Think of that. Once you are born again, you will never die. There will never be a need for a third birth, or a fourth, or a fifth, or a sixth. When regeneration has truly occurred, it causes things that will keep you alive. It causes the functions and the... Processes and so on and so forth that manifest life and will be with you until the end of this life on earth. Some practical implications very quickly. Number one, regeneration is a miracle. We need to recover this. Now, perhaps a lot of what I said goes over your head here. Perhaps there's been a lot of terms in this discussion and a lot of concepts that are a little difficult, that's okay. But what I really want you to understand is that if you're born of God, what happened to you is miraculous. It is not something natural. It's not something simple. It's not something that was manufactured by you or by others. It was miraculous. God called Light out of darkness. He brought life to where there was only death. It was miraculous. And sometimes we're always wanting something more from God. As if God has to somehow show himself to be powerful. By something that he does in our lives right now. When we fail to realize that he has already done it. He has brought Sinners out of the grave to life. One of the Puritans said that Satan tempted Jesus to show he was the Son of God by turning stones into bread. Well, the Holy Spirit has proven his power by showing that he turns your heart, has turned your heart into a heart of flesh. It's a miracle. And that's why we sing, I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. But then your Spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me. Through the gospel of your Son, gave me endless hope and peace. Number two, regeneration is recognized by its fruits. You don't feel regeneration but you experience its effects. And what I want you to do now is to go home and to evaluate your life and say, for me to know whether regeneration has taken place, know whether I'm born of God, do I see the biblically described effects of regeneration? We don't base assurance of salvation on what we haven't experienced. We base it on the effects of what regeneration is supposed to and must be accomplish in your life. Third, regeneration, not decisions, is the ultimate goal of evangelism. When you go and share the gospel, never think that you just want a person to pray a prayer. Never think you just want him to sign a card to come to church. Those things might be helpful. Your goal, your prayer to God, your target The reason why you share the gospel is that you know it is the word that is used in regeneration of lost sinners. Pray for that. Finally, regeneration means God gets all the glory. Regeneration, God's response to total depravity, means that He gets all the glory. Nothing is what we, we don't contribute anything to this. We just receive its benefits. God gets all the glory. And He does so not because He is egotistical, a madman. He does this because when He gets the glory, it is glorious for those from whom He gets it. So when we give God the glory for His great work of regeneration in our lives. Our benefit is inestimable. And let's give Him the glory for this. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this wonderful doctrine that comes as the direct response to our reality. The reality that we once faced that of total inability and complete corruption. And this doctrine of regeneration, this teaching of being born again, gives us your knowledge, your wisdom, and how you have countered total depravity. You've done so by making us who were once dead alive. Help us never to grow weary or ambivalent to the miracle that took place in our lives but help us to become more and more enthralled by what you have done and and more and more amazed at the magnitude and the depth and the breadth of this miracle that you did for us and in us. And I also pray that undoubtedly in this room, there are those who are not born of you, at least not yet. I pray that you would remove any deceit that exists whether that deceit has been foisted upon them by others or whether created in their own minds. And that even tonight you would reveal to them who they really are in their deadness of transgressions. And as you do, we pray you would call them with that effectual calling and give them life. That they might know this wonderful miracle. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray.